And she says, well, you know, the, the gospel is not about race, right? The, the, the gospel has no color. And I look over to her and she has a bookmark of an obvious white Jesus, blonde hair, <laughs> blue eyes, right? I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I catch up, and then we've got some news to share of where we are actually broadcasting this week. And then later on in the pod, Missy and I had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Willie Francois III, who has a new book out, Silencing White Noise. And if you have never stayed around for one of our interviews, this is the one to stick around for because we talk about some incredible issues and topics within this book. So it is a great pod. Stay tuned. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Hello there, Missy. Hello. So how are things with you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I hear that you have a new office. I do. I finally finished painting and moved in, and I'm trying to adjust. Are you hanging things on the wall? Is this your, like, <laughs> to get some props for hanging, hanging two shelves for me? <laughs> hey, it took a lot of effort. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, your office looks great, and uh, uh, we'll have to send some pictures because uh, everybody saw you painting last week and need to show them the final product. So looks pretty cool. Maybe so. Yeah. Well, Missy, where are we broadcasting from today? This is the big news of the week. I hear we're in TikTok jail. Oh, we are. The door has slammed the Keys have been thrown away, and yes, we have been sentenced to TikTok jail. I've never been in social media jail. Have you? I have not. This is my first. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of exciting, but scary at the same time. It is. We're kind of like Paul, right? <laughs> We're broadcasting from jail. This is like the modern day version of Paul. <laughs> Minus the misogyny. <laughs> I don't know if we're like Paul, but maybe the walls of the maybe jail shell. Jason. Yeah. How is. about we say that? Because <laughs> let's be real. The moment you get to like torture and starvation, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would you would not fare well persecuted. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't know why we've been put into TikTok jail, but we certainly have. I figured it's just because we're old and irrelevant. We're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you can't be there. Right. They took one look at me and said, yeah, Grandpa, this is not your platform. No, no. <laughs> He's and on back to Facebook, Luby's Grandpa. opens at three for dinner. <laughs> hey, that Louisiana is a good dish. You mean Luann? Or the, the Luann. Luann <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I go to the off-brand. <laughs> Can't afford that upscale dining. Uh, well, yes, we are in TikTok jail, but hopefully we've got people working on this issue and we'll be back and running in no time. So I hope so. I, I feel like too. this gives me more street cred than my first conviction. Oh, you really want to talk about that on air? 
ladies and gentlemen, sit back, grab some popcorn, get you a drink, and tune in because this is about to get really good. So, Missy, tell us about your first conviction in Tarrant County, Fort Worth, Texas. I don't know. I'm shaking out. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, And whatever you're thinking out there, it ain't it. (laughs) No, this is really a stupid story, but um, it still makes me sweaty. (laughs) So we... uh, We adopted this dog, (laughs) y'all, from the pound. Yes. Like... We were trying to, starting to look for a pet for our boys. You know, they were at that age. We're going to get a dog. And so we're looking around on PetFinder.com. And I find this little beagle who is adorable. And I just, you know, quick shot an email to the shelter and said, hey, tell me about this dog. And they were like, listen, he's going to be put down tomorrow. Can you come get him? And so, of course, what am I going to do? We go get this dog. We named him appropriately Lucky. Because <laughs> we literally swooped in on the last day. Anyways. Well, Lucky was his middle name. His first name was Dam. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Um, and, and there were a lot of amazing things about Lucky that we loved. But um, he, he was a bit of an escape artist, mm-hmm. which explained why he was in the pound. <laughs> right. um, so... I mean, I don't know. It was a couple of days after we got him. Mm-hmm. He got out of the yard, right? And we were devastated. The boys were devastated. Yeah. Looking everywhere, I immediately called the vet and said, hey, um, you know, Lucky got out. If you get a phone call, because of course we had done all the right things. He had his rabies tag. He had his vet tags, all the things. So I called the vet and said, you know, if, if the city calls you, um, let us know. Well, about an hour later, I got a call from Animal Control who says, hey, we found your dog. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Let's go get him. So we all load up. Do you have something to say? I feel like you have I'm just to waiting to make certain that you let them know. Where Lucky was I'm found. going to let them know that. So Lucky <clears throat> was found. The animal control officer said, hey, I found him in the parking lot of the Baptist church. And I'm like, of course you did. Oh, he was such, <laughs> such a spiritual dog. That's right. I mean, he loved the Lord. So he, he was going to church, y'all. So we drove to the church to meet the animal control officer to pick up Lucky. We were so excited. And the animal control officer meets us there. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. You found our dog. We were so excited. He's like, yeah, ma'am, whatever. Here's your ticket. <laughs> I said, What? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. He's like, no, you get a ticket for, I don't know, $350, which at the time, well, I mean, it's still a lot of money, but sure. at the time it was truly a lot of money. Right. We didn't have that kind of like just extra money. So, I mean, you, I mean, you just wrote the check out and we went on about our way, right? No. <laughs> no. What, what do we do, Norma Ray? <laughs> I decided to take it to court. <laughs> fight the power, fight the power. I was so mad. <laughs> so i go to court guys i've never been to court before (laughs) 
And I, I don't know if you guys have gleaned from my episodes, am not the toughest. <laughs> no, you are not. <laughs> I will confirm that. No. Um, add to that, I'm a very nervous crier. Like, <laughs> I've never even been to a parent-teacher conference where I haven't had to fight tears. I don't know what mm. this is about me, but the moment I get nervous, <laughs> I start crying. Okay, so you've got the perfect story. I mean, you're sitting there in front of the judge. I mean, you've adopted this dog right before it's supposed to be euthanized. Right. You're, you've got you know, tears welling in your eyes. So surely, surely you got out of this. No. <laughs> you didn't. What in happened? In fact, everybody else that was there in animal court, which, believe it or not, <laughs> is a thing. Now that is a new reality TV show. We were sitting Ladies in court. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to animal court. No, we were sitting in court with about, I don't know, 20 other people. And everybody's like, yeah, guilty, guilty. They just want to pay their fine and go about their merry way or whatever. Or I think if you pled, pled guilty, you got a break on the price. I don't remember. Well, you also had the option of going to volunteer at a shelter. Oh, well, who does that? I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. We love animals, y'all. <laughs> Go SBCA. <laughs> so I, I don't remember. I just remember well, I was we, the we lone were, had person. A, we had a young family, and it was going to be on a Saturday. The boys were playing soccer. It had been difficult for us to do that. No, really. I was just... <laughs> well, there was that too. And I didn't want to admit guilt. I was really mad. So I was the only person in that courtroom who was like, not guilty. If I remember right, the judge said, you're really, <laughs> you're really going to plead not guilty on this? I didn't remember that, but thank you for bringing that up. So they, they cleared the courtroom of all of the criminals and we had a trial. We did. <laughs> You're remembering things about this that really... <laughs> if you could just see her now, ladies and gentlemen, I right. mean, uh, her forehead's beating up raw. with sweat. So anyways, he asked, I don't remember what he asked, but I stood up and started to tell my story about how we rescued this dog because I thought that justified my... That was probably I, the I problem know. right there because it was a female judge, but go ahead. <laughs> Maybe so. So I get up and start telling my story, and of course... <laughs> I immediately start crying because that's just what I do. I was trying not to, but I was nervous. And, um, you know, I was talking about how we had just adopted this dog. We did not realize that a 25-pound beagle could slip through a six-inch hole in the fence. Um, and that we had done all the things that we were supposed to do with the vet and registered him and gotten his blah, 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 blah. Anyway, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Guilty. And then like, you know, <laughs> gaveled her down, <laughs> and put the, I put the bracelets on. I was mortified. <laughs> I just got called guilty in a court of law. Yeah. I was mortified. Yeah. Anyway, it could have been, it could have been an episode of law and order. Right. <laughs> it could have been, it could have been. And there's. There's a follow-up to that. Do we want to tell that now or wait? Huh? I don't know. Well, let's just tell it really quickly because, I mean, this is a funny story. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, it's a conviction. Yeah, I mean, it's a conviction of uh, pet without a leash. or I can't remember what the, the citation Unrestrained was. Unrestrained Unrestrained, pet. yeah, pet or something like that. So we go about our merry way, live our lives. There's lots of other stories about Lucky that we can get into later on down the road. But there comes a point when we entertain the, the possibility of being called to a church, and that church wanted to interview us. 
Okay, so <laughs> as you guys know, it's not so much, well, I mean, most of you probably know, but it, it's not as much of a thing now, but back in the day, um, it was very typical for um, a prospective minister to be interviewed along with a spouse there. So I was sitting in an interview with um, this church where, I mean, the previous church before this job, that we were very excited about. We really um, were hopeful that this would work out. And at the end of the interview, I mean, I had just been sitting there observing and, you know, taking part in some of the conversation. Um, one of the um, gentlemen on the search committee says, oh, yeah, and by the way, we're going to need to run a background check <laughs> on both of you. So nervous <laughs> Nelly over here. You can imagine what this does to I her. I wanted to throw up. <laughs> That's not the only time I put that job in jeopardy. And that story we will save for we will another save for time. So, um, and those of, yeah, our friends who live here in Norman are laughing because they've heard this story several times. But, um, so I didn't know what was going to show up on my record, but I knew I had a conviction. She's <laughs> got a rap sheet. I do have a rap sheet. So I had to be like, okay, like everybody was standing up to leave the room. Like, it's like, oh yeah, by the way. And I'm like, yeah, y'all got to sit back down. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to confess something to I you. I have to confess. I have a conviction on my record. I mean, I literally and, and said When she that. says that, the, the, uh, the, the room goes quiet because, I mean, what could come next? I mean, she right? has stopped the end of the meeting. Well, she goes on. So I, I tell this story as I've just shared with God and everyone who's listening. Um, God does not listen to this podcast. God does not, he probably doesn't. He's like, yeah, he's done with us. Um, so I share this story and... Um, all it did was give this entire committee, <laughs> of which they were giddy, <laughs> ammunition for the next 15 or however many years you yeah. were at this church, because they were so tickled pink to have this little nugget of information about me that I never heard the end of that. So, yeah. um, it, which I mean, I learned later, and those of you who are in law who are listening, and I know there are several of you, um, I did not understand that a misdemeanor was not the same as a what, felony, as a felony, <laughs> and that it would not show up on a background check. Correct? Right. Is that right? Okay, okay. so it wasn't going to show up. But in that moment, I didn't know, <laughs> and so all I could see was uh, that they ran, they would run this background check on both you and me, and it would come up that I had a conviction, and then you wouldn't get this job. And there's many, many things wrong with this system. Now that I'm thinking it through, <laughs> but we can discuss that later. So that's the story. Of like, how and, did we get on this subject? Uh, I, we talk, started talking about TikTok jail, and you talked about uh, oh, being yes. convicted. The TikTok conviction and jail sentence is yeah. way cooler. Yeah, it, it really is. So, well, thank you for sharing that story, jail. ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to comment on that story, uh, please right. leave your comments uh, on the social media platform that you find our podcast. Well, Missy and I got to sit down this week with Reverend Dr. Willie Francois III, who is an incredible pastor. He's got a new book out entitled Silencing White Noise, and it is an incredible conversation, and you're going to learn so much from this interview because Dr. Francois is an amazing scholar, 
pastor and thinker. What'd you think about it? I, as, as you'll hear in the interview, had a couple of comments. I listened to it on audiobook and I know you read it in hard um, copy and, um, I just think that you need to buy both, both, yeah. both. <laughs> um, because you're going to want to hear his voice, but you're also going to want to highlight. Right. Yeah. He tells the story about his inspiration for the title and the concept. Uh, and then he elaborates on everything that is just lulling us to sleep as a society that prevents us from seeking true racial justice in this country. And so it is an amazing, amazing book. And so I just cannot wait to, to bring this interview to you. I hope that you stay tuned and listen to Dr. Francois. And then after the interview, don't pass go. Go immediately to wherever you purchase your books and buy a copy of Silencing White Noise. Now, here's Dr. Francois. Definitely. R- wait. And put on your church clothes before the last <laughs> He does. He does take you to church. He does take you to church. <laughs> That's right. And you'll be glad you went. So we'll be right back after these messages. Hey, listeners. Check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org. And follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, the Reverend Dr. Willie Dwayne Francois III. He serves as the senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey. Francois graduated from Morehouse College with a Bachelor's of Arts in History and Religion. He received a Master's of Divinity from Harvard University Divinity School, where he received the Hopkins Shareholders Award, the school's highest academic recognition, and served as the class of 2012 commencement speaker. In addition, he received a Doctorate of Ministry degree at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Francois is president of the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. He serves as an assistant professor of liberation theology at New York Theological Seminary and directs a master's degree program at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. He created the Public Love Organization and Training Project and has served in various organizations engaging in racial justice. Francois is an active speaker and has written for HuffPost, Sojourners, The Hill, The Christian Century, and Religion Dispatches. His latest book, Silencing White Noise, is available now. Dr. Francois, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to to talking. Well, congratulations on the book. We've got it right here. Uh, It is spectacular. Uh, Thank you so much for writing it. And I think it's going to be paramount in this conversation that we're having as the church and the world about racial issues and racial justice in particular. And so just congratulate on it. We want to encourage our listeners right after this interview to go to wherever you purchase your books and buy this book. It is worth every penny of it. I will say that as we were reading the book, Mitch was reading the hard copy. I was listening on Audible. I mentioned to Mitch, I said, I hope 
um, he's okay with us just basically quoting him <laughs> to him because we just <laughs> oh. backlogs. So that this whole interview is just basically going to be us quoting you and then asking you to. to yeah, well, we, okay. we office in our house, and obviously we're married, and I've got an office, and she's got an office. And as she was listening to your book, I would walk through to you know, walk through the the living room and an area where she was listening to the kitchen, and I can't tell you how many terms I said, "Amen." I heard, "Amen." That to preach on. <laughs> It was really, really, I love it. She was inspired. One, one, I'm, in, I'm impressed that you have two versions of the book, two very different versions of the book uh, in, in the home and uh, that I haven't even uh, mustered up the courage to listen to me read the book yet. So I, well, I thank you, Miss I'll comment on that in a minute. I've got, I've got a note to comment on that, so, but we'll get, we'll get there. Um, but, uh, before we kind of dive into the, the depths of the book, um, tell our listeners, what was your inspiration for the concept of white noise? And, um, you recall the sweet story about your newborn son. And, and I think our listeners would enjoy hearing that. Sure. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm writing this book and, 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 you know, chapter one is already done uh, before I, I, I actually uh, think about that story. Uh, I, I have, I actually go back and embed this story and, and literally it reshapes uh, the entire work mm-hmm. uh, because I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about like, how does racism really function? Like what, what is actually going on? It's not really about people. Uh, you know, it, it's not really about laws only, uh, but there's something else uh, more diffuse, something else that is always in the background that actually makes these, these other manifestations uh, possible. And I remember uh, just being enamored uh, with how comfortable uh, my son was uh, in his in his in his bed. I think uh, it, it was called the snoo. It was called the snoo, <laughs> where uh, you you have this built-in white noise and you have this built-in rocking that's happening. Literally, uh, his sleep training was was successful because of the snoo. But it was this built-in mm-hmm. white noise machine uh, that 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 masked. Uh, a, what I call the, the familiarity of the peace and calmness uh, of, of the womb, uh, literally uh, in, in Harlem is probably you, you probably experience some of the greatest noise levels of uh, period. Uh, and, and, None of that affected him uh, because this white noise machine uh, really drowned out so much of what was real, drowned out so much of of the other noise that has the capacity uh, to to disrupt us, to, to, to disturb us. And I thought... This is how racism works, right? Uh, because racism, white supremacy, whiteness, uh, not about white people, uh, not about white skin, uh, but about ideas and, and, and silence and misrepresentations that lull us to sleep. Ideas, speech, silence, misrepresentation that literally rock us into uh, what, what I talk about uh, or what I quote in the book as this, this political narcolepsy, that we find ourselves asleep. We find ourselves unwilling to do something, find ourselves thinking there's nothing to be done because racism has already been solved, or we find ourselves regurgitating and, and, and replicating uh, the racism that exists in the world because there's something that lives in the background lulling us to sleep. And it is that, 
which lulls us to sleep, that is really protecting and perpetuating the kind of massive racial inequality that we see today. Anyone who's been a parent can totally relate to what you're saying because at all costs, you just want that baby to sleep. But it does lull, it does block out what's really happening around them and allows them to go into this trance. So I just thought that was such a perfect um, jumping off point for the book. Yeah, absolutely. There's just so much uh, in the book that uh, readers will want to highlight and underline. But in this first chapter, you come out swinging. You talk about colorblind Christianity. You write, colorblind racism promotes white noise in four ways, through the myths of one, equal opportunism, two, cultural assimilation, three, social naturalism, and four, naive romanticism. Can you expound on this critique of colorblind racism? I'm, I'm flying back from, from Charlotte, uh, and there's a, a woman sitting next to me who is reading a book. I'm reading a book. Uh, you know, that often doesn't happen in America. We just have people <laughs> right, just reading. Exactly. Uh, so th- that's already an exciting exception that's happening. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm reading a book uh, called Race, a Theological Account. Uh, and she asked me what the book is 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 about, and I, I, I talked to her about you know it's a book that's making a claim about how Christianity has been allied with 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 racism. I, I go through all of that, and she says, well, you know, Christianity, uh, the, the the gospel is not about race, right? The, the the gospel has no color, and I look over to her, and I try to have this conversation with her. I look over to her, and she has a bookmark of an obvious white Jesus, blonde hair, <laughs> blue eyes, right? Uh, and, and, and you know, automatically my mind is like, well, Jesus is a Palestinian carpenter. There's right. no way yeah. his skin looked like that. There's no, you know, his eyes could be blue, but but like there's no way his skin uh, looked look like that. And it just reminded me of the ways that we misrecognize how we are spreading racial lies messages, but also racist messages uh, when, when we're unaware, when we're unaware, particularly with that white Jesus on, on a bookmark. But yeah, uh, and, and, and I talk about that as colorblind Christianity, the, the kind of Christianity that, that denies the diversities of the image of God, uh, the, the type of Christianity that exaggerates racial progress, uh, the kind of Christianity that upholds the sins of whiteness that I talk about uh, in the book, and I talk about those sins in three particular ways. But 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 to this point about colorblind colorblind uh, racism is it, it it manifests in those four ways that 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 you just that you just. Uh, read for us, it often tells us that everybody has equal opportunity and it denies the ways that race actually does have determinants in how people have access to jobs, how people are treated in the healthcare system, right? It, 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 we miss the fact that black women uh, are more likely to die doing childbirth than white women. Uh, and and when, we, when we act as if Everybody has equal access to this dream of America, the promise of America. We find non-helpful ways to explain why black women are dying at, at higher rates. That, that, that equal opportunist, uh, opportunism myth uh, is, is at work. There's also the myth that, that tells us, oh, but look how far we've come. Uh, we have a black president. Uh, we, we have a black <laughs> vice president, a black female vice president, right? Oh, we, we now have a black woman on Supreme Court. Look at how far we've come. And, and, and that's a part of colorblind racism because what it does is 
it denies the pains of today by comparing it to a time that shouldn't have existed within itself, right? right. And then there are these other ways that that it shows up, uh, the, the, the sort of these cultural uh, ways of talking about racism, uh, making claims about, uh, well, you know, if people worked hard enough, you know, maybe they could go to college. If people worked hard enough, maybe they could have have X, Y, Z. And what's particular about about that type of colorblind blind racism is that it blames black poverty on black people, mm -hmm. but it blames white poverty on something systemic. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's making these kind of cultural arguments that that surely as hard as white people work. This can't be be their fault. But 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 when we find black poverty, it must be something cultural uh, at work there. And then it colorblind racism also says uh, to us, well, just certain things are particularly normal. Right. Uh, the ways we we, we don't talk about segregation as much as we should uh, anymore, but it'll say things like, well, you know, people who are of the same skin color, they want to live together, right? Uh, as if most black people actually get to decide where they live because the majority of people live where they live because of where they can afford. And when we don't take seriously the way race and class co-mingle together and determine where, you know, zip code injustice is real along the lines of race and color, but it's so it's easier for us to say, no, people group naturally based on their skin color when we know that's just not true. Mm, well said. So I, I will say that I have been listening to this book as I've been repainting a room in our house. And so this is my my beef with the audiobook is that I can't tell you this has taken me twice as long as normal because <laughs> I keep having to stop and get off the ladder and write down a quote or bookmark the spot that I wanted to talk about. So that's my beef with the audio book. <laughs> wow. That, that's, yo, that is a great selling point. It's I, real I tough, think, yeah. Can you just say that everywhere? <laughs> I will. I will be your PR person. We'll, we'll go, we'll take this show on the road. But you mentioned one of the things that kind of stopped me in my tracks while I was um, painting was the spiritual bypassing. And maybe that doesn't resonate with everyone, but for me, growing up in the Bible Belt, I'm a Texas kid, which I believe you Galveston, are. Galveston, well. Texas. Yeah. Galveston, okay, Texas. So I'm a Texas girl. The home girl. of Juneteenth. But that is exactly the principle that that just the undercurrent of the, the faith community that I grew up in. And um, you told a story. I have I have retyped it, but I think I'll just let you take it and and Tell us spiritual by, about spiritual bypassing and, and why that, what its impact is. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, I think this is uh, in, in the chapter on the pulse to risk uh, mm -hmm. where I'm really trying to work my way through. And, and uh, I, I know you all were in new Orleans with, with, with me a few weeks ago. So you might, you might remember some of this work around abolitionist spirituality where I'm, where I'm thinking through a kind of spirituality that takes seriously the social pains of today, but also is so hopeful that it believes something can be done about it. Yeah. Uh, that chapter was really developed out of a scenario where I'm, I'm speaking to a group of student athletes. Uh, they, they've had a triumphant uh, athletic year, a questionable academic year, uh, but they've had a really traumatic communal life uh, because of a death that happens there. Uh, and and I, I want to make a connection with these primarily black and, and Latinx athletes uh, that their value 
is so much more uh, obvious than what they may be experiencing from, and I use this phrase, a white teacher who doesn't understand the pains of of, of black and brown life, right? Uh, I, I might have said something a little more a little more nuanced uh, than, than that. I, I sit down and a white teacher uh, leans over to me and says, uh, are, are you sure you're a pastor? And, and I'm like, yeah, the last time I checked, I, I do work at a church as a senior pastor, not too far from here, uh, not too far from the high school, uh, actually. Uh, and, and she says, because, you know, I just can't believe uh, that the only racism that these boys, and she does say boys, I don't think I put that in the book, the only racism that these boys experience uh, is what you said today by naming racism. Because talking about racism is the only racism that there really is. That, oh. that, that, that's kind of how she she frames that 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 for me. And what I realized was happening there, and she and 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 she ends uh, this conversation. Uh, and actually, uh, I, you, you know, for certain reasons, we have to uh, ch- change certain details about persons in the book. I think I talk about it as as a man because I don't want to get sued. Uh, so hopefully, <laughs> I don't get sued because of the podcast. Uh, although I highly doubt that per- that teacher's gonna uh, <laughs> be listening. <laughs> I doubt she's gonna buy this book or listen to uh, this kind of dynamic podcast. But you know, just in case. Uh, darn uh but but so she's so she's so she's talking uh so she keeps on going and then she says uh because racism is sin and only god can fix sin right and we know sin is not going anywhere that's why jesus died right there was this kind of spiritual bypassing that i talk about there Mm -hmm. that this this appropriation of of religious traditions and religious ideas that allow us to do nothing right this idea there's nothing we can do about racism uh because racism is a byproduct of the devil at work and the devil will always be at work what that does is it 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 lulls us yes into sleep but it also compromises what it means to be a person of faith is that if we continue to tell ourselves that there's nothing we can do about about injustice, that there's nothing we can do about racism or sexism or homophobia or classism, uh, it, 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 it allows us to let ourselves off the hook for making God's vision for the world here a reality, right? Uh, and, and, and so when I think about spiritual bypassing, I think about those ways that we use religion and we use spirituality as ways and reasons for doing nothing. Uh, I, I think I quote in there James Baldwin, uh, where he talks about, you know, Jesus not letting us off the hook because Jesus is actually a better man than we took him for, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jesus does not make this great bargain with us that allows us to get away with our racism and get away with our sexism and get away with our classism. No, Jesus, even in, in that dynamic universal love that Jesus demonstrates for humanity, we should be held accountable for the systems and the isms that we use to lift ourselves up as if humanity should have a hierarchy or to demean other people as if humanity should have a hierarchy. At least Jesus holds us accountable in the sense of there's something we should be doing to abolish them. Well, and what that looks like, you know, for, for me and, you know, in my uh, childhood and growing up was we, we did have a responsibility. We, we were to save the souls, right? I mean, in, in, in the way that we defined what that meant to be quote unquote safe. But once we did that, like we're good, God's going to take care of the rest. That's why it's, 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 I think you even said a heart problem, you know, this is a heart problem. And I 
heard that so much go, growing up. And I think it was just a way to kind of, you know, brush our hands and say, we've, we've done our part. We've, we've dunked and, and, you know, um, got people on the rolls and now we'll go to the, we'll do the downstream, you know, problem solving. Yeah. Like you talk about, we won't, we're not going to go upstream because, you know, we've, we've, we've saved enough souls and therefore God's got to work on the heart at this point. And so it just kind of absolves, I think, um, people from the responsibility to now continue on and do the work of, you know, let's go see what's going on upstream basically. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what folks like Dr. King and, and Ella Baker and, and John Lewis were trying to get at when they, you know, they, they, they were responding to that kind of, no, no, Churches are churches are invested in the work of saving souls and God has to handle the rest. We we have to get people to God. We should care about what happens to people's souls because the soul is more important than the body, right? And when Dr. King and, and, and SELC make the tag, make their tagline, save redeeming the soul of America, is is to talk about no that the work of justice is really about the soul of the state. Mm-hmm. It, it's about the soul of a society, the soul of the community. So when we do the work of justice, when we do the work of repair, when we can name that our schools don't have to look like prison preparatory academies, when we can say that that a healthcare system shouldn't be set up as an apartheid along the lines of race and gender, when we can talk about uh, food deserts as as not natural, but food deserts as, as failed public policy, we're doing the work of saving the soul of a state saving the soul of a community, saving the soul of a nation. And that is what abolitionist spirituality is about. Absolutely. And what you both are talking about, I can, I conclude might be the number one crime against Christian or the Christian faith, because we've got an initiative at Good Faith Media called the Jesus Worldview Initiative that really mm-hmm. attempts to follow and, and follow the teachings and example of Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to uh, put your theologian hat on for a second. And you've been talking theology this whole time, but we're really going to dive into a theological nerd question here. It happened really quickly, I think. The divorce of what you're talking about and this over-spiritualization of gospel, mm. that it, it almost— Christianity almost became more Hellenistic than it was about this Palestinian Jew who ministered in Palestine for three years. The gospel that Jesus speaks about is the gospel that you're speaking about. It has a yeah. realism to it. It has flesh and blood to it. Yeah. But it seems as though very quickly, and as we have European expansionism, all of a sudden we stopped talking about the physicality of the gospel and emphasized the the spiritualness, which is more Hellenistic, that it, it all has to do with the spirit. Yeah. And to me, Dr. Francois, you're talking about the true gospel versus a white gospel that has been created or has been in development for 2000 created years. Created in our image, would you say yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Created in yeah, a wide no, image. No, I love that. I love that. Uh, I, I, I think I, I, I use that regularly, that yeah. that one of the sins of, of Western Christianity, which is, is now infected so much of what we know as Christianity, uh, is this, this 
creation of God in our image. Uh, this this uh, imago imago humano. I, I don't know how yeah, she yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> this the imago anthropos, right? It, it's 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 that uh, we have we've we've turned God into us instead of us trying to think about how God has has shaped and formed us uh, to 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 bear that image. Uh, I talk in that 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 first chapter about uh, the 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 brilliance of the Imago Day is that it it honors and names the divinity of difference. It talks about the diversities of of the image of God. And when we talk about creating God in our image, largely that is making God white, making God male, making God capitalist, making God rich, uh, making God American, and making God old, right? Uh, an old, rich, white capitalist becomes the image of, of God. And that impacts how people who follow God, Christians uh, and, and, and other religions too, but particularly Christians, how we function in the world, how we live in the world, what type of world uh, we, we we actually want. And this project has been at work since Constantine co-ops yep. Christianity in the fourth in the fourth century. I, th- I think we should never forget that so much of what we take for granted about what's orthodox about Jesus, what's orthodox about scripture, what's orthodox about the Holy Spirit comes from a time where you have an emperor who wants to hang on to power and wants to use the church as a way of hanging on to power. It is Constantine that says, close the doors and don't come out until you have one single definition of who Jesus is, what Jesus' nature is, and where Jesus comes from. And what happens? You have the church and the empire using prisons, using animals, uh, using all other forms of humiliation to purge itself of its more prophetic edges, right? And and so, so much of how Christianity has allied with with power in the worst ways comes from that 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 that, that th- those moments where Constantine becomes the head of the church, and we've not found ways in mass in mass uh, to to do that to do that kind of work. Which is why I talk about Christianity not in its singularity, but I talk about Christianity as a kind of plural plurality. Mm-hmm. I, I, in the book, I talk about Christianities, right, and that, that that's. Not not new. I mean, that's not novel to me. It, it's something I picked up along along the way that I try to articulate in my own way. Uh, but Christianities, uh, that there are so many ways that Christianity is being practiced. And I have to name that because what I see as the dominant form of Christianity in our politics, in, our, in American politics, it doesn't represent the Palestinian carpenter who was executed by his own government that that I think I attempt uh, to, to to follow, and and I and I think about this that Christianity, the same faith tradition, at least in name only, lives in very different ways in the plantation chapel and in the brush harbor right outside the plantation. Mm-hmm. You have these, the you know Sunday morning masters preacher is preaching slaves obey your masters right, and then in the evenings you have slaves that get up and they go into the clearings, they go into the brush harbors where they have ring shouts and where they sing songs like I got shoes, you got shoes, all God 
God's chilling got shoes, where it's in the brush harbor, where you have black folk who are recreating Christianity in a way that is connected to liberation and connected to the establishment of human dignity outside of the gaze of whiteness and very different than what they possibly heard in the morning service on the plantation. Wow. Oh my gosh. I, I want to camp out. There. <laughs> <laughs> we, like I on. said, Shoot. after okay. he sells his first million, we're going to drop a podcast. We're going to do something. Are you going to ask questions? Yeah. Uh, so in, in the course of the book, you mentioned several inequalities, such as income inequality and mass incarceration, that they're disproportionate for where society is. Um, in your in this uh, presentation you gave in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago, you also talked about the difference or the delineation between reparation or reparative theology versus reconciliation. That a lot of times they want to people want to rush to reconciliation without doing the reparative work that needs to be done. We had the honor and privilege of covering the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre here in Oklahoma uh, in 2021. It was heartbreaking uh, to hear story after story of those individuals and the their, what their ancestors went through. One of those stories that, well, let me just back up. We were never, I, was, I grew up in Tulsa. We were, never, we were never told that story. Nobody ever mentioned it to us. And it speaks to the, the whitewashing of history, the reconstruction of history. Uh, and it's even on today with this, this luna, lunacy of CRT being taught in schools. I mean, it's just, it's just this continuation of it. But one of the stories we learned that was really significant for us was that after the massacre and the burning of property, because we never forget that this is Black Wall Street, that it was one of the most incredible places of wealth, especially black wealth in the country. Yeah. After the destruction and burning of property, the white system denied insurance claims, even though these property owners had them. And therefore, with that, along with putting a highway, which is, this is you know their MO, putting a highway right through Greenwood, it eliminated generation. It stopped generational wealth right there in 1921. Mm. So my question is this: How can we get people to understand how historical racism continues to reverberate in modern times? Yeah. So there's a chapter uh, where I talk about uh, this this practice of, and the book is. You know, I, I call it a practice, uh, but it's really a process. These are processes more than they are practices. They 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 take time. Mm -hmm. uh, they they require levels of experimentation and adaptation based on on who you are and where you are. Uh, uh, but but I talk in the book about the momentum to encounter uh, this 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 openness to take seriously the history of the present. Right. Uh, that when we talk about slavery, we cannot simply talk about it as something that was abolished uh, in, in 1865. Uh, we have to talk about its lingering effects that live in our economy today. 
that live in in, in the way race relations uh, are shaped uh, today. Uh, so the, the practice of the momentum to encounter is being able to slow down and do what I call legacy locating. Mm-hmm. Where we start to ask ourselves the question, why are there more black men? who are in prison today uh, than there were black men enslaved uh, 10 years before the Civil War happened, right? Uh, What can we do to start raising questions and reminding ourselves there's nothing normal about black people going to jail? There should be nothing normal about Latinx children being warehoused in cages on our southern border. We have to start asking ourselves the question, what history got us here? Because what we're experiencing today is not ex nihilo. Mm -hmm. What we're experiencing today is we've proceeded here from a past that, yes, some people say may be much worse than what we're experiencing today. And there are others that may say this is the exact same kind of crisis that this nation has always been under. But but no matter which side of the spectrum we live on in terms of of how we analyze the present, we have to be willing to say that we got here today via historical development, that we talk about prisons today because we're able to to trace a legacy to plantations of yesterday. We're able to talk about weight, uh, to talk about the racial wealth gap today, uh, which, you know, their white families on average have 11 times the wealth of black families. We have to be able to trace that to vagrancy laws that denied uh, folk the opportunity to work during reconstruction and post reconstruction and talk about the wage theft that existed through 80 years of Jim Crow. We have to be able to draw these linkages between what we're experiencing, what we're living with today and the history that lives right underneath it. Every present has a history. Absolutely. And uh, in the speech that you gave down in New Orleans, I remember you saying, we must never forget that the United States of America was founded by stolen land and stolen labor. Yeah. And I think that is paramount to the our existence. You know, and it doesn't mean that we hate America, that we're unpatriotic. It simply means that we're trying to be honest in an attempt to become a more perfect union or a more perfect person or community. We're trying to understand where we came from so that we don't repeat that, but more so we're trying to uh, improve ourselves as people of faith. So, I mean, this was just really paramount. You you did a fabulous job. Thank you for sharing this. So I have a couple of, I have tons of quotes and quips that are in my phone, but I've pulled a couple, two little sentences you mentioned in the book that just I'm going to take with me wherever I go. Um, One is risk is the heartbeat of faith. And the other one is justice is where the political and the spiritual rendezvous. Yeah. Can you kind of just speak for a moment to each one of those? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now the first is, is, is just really a part of my own uh, sort of earthy theology uh, is, is, is that where there is no, no risk, uh, there is no faith. Uh, I, I think I first drew that from uh, who's actually my favorite theologian. He's a white guy, uh, white, you know, dead German guy. Paul Tillich uh, mm-hmm. talks about uh, to 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 not risk is to become a failure in your entire being. Uh, and you know, obviously Tillich is not thinking about this in in the 
in the in the in the more social sense that that I the socio political sense the the political economic sense uh, that that I'm thinking about. But but our faith must have serious skin in the game. Right. Uh, that I think we compromise the integrity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus uh, if we're not willing to take risk on behalf of those who uh, who uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett would call the sinned against. There's some who are more sinned against than they are sinners, uh, she would say. Uh, those who live, Howard Thurman, with their backs up against the wall. Uh, France Fanon, those who are the wretched of the earth. If we are not willing to risk for them, right, remembering that all of us carry both power and oppression in our beings, right? I, I often think about you know my own journey as a as a black man that while my racial identity is one that is disadvantaged, disadvantaged and oppressed, uh, my my class identity is one uh, that is privileged. Uh, my citizenship status is one that is that is privileged. Uh, uh, my, how I identify sexually uh, is is one that is, that is privileged. So in a single body, I have the intersection of privilege and oppression living in me. And what makes my faith, this kind of earthy, abolitionist, lived out loud faith, is when I am willing to sacrifice those privileges on behalf of other people, to sacrifice my male privilege on behalf of, of 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 other people, particularly Black and Latinx women, uh, but but all women uh, uh, in, in general, right? So so faith must be risky in that way, uh, and and this other sense of you know that that quote uh, the. Uh, Justice is where the political and spiritual rendezvous, right? Uh, it grows out of when I first got to Mount Zion Baptist Church, I was told regularly that my sermons were too political. Uh, and <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, I'm not talking about Republicans. I'm not talking right, about right. Democrats. Uh, you know, uh, we had a Republican governor at the time. Uh, and, you know, I start public ministry uh, in the last year of Barack Hussein I, as a pastor, as a senior mm -hmm. pastor in the last year of Barack Hussein Obama's presidency. Uh, so very early on in my ministry, uh, you know, Donald Trump is president. Right. right, right. And, and, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm I think I'm talking about 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 issues that that impact the kitchen table. Uh, issues that that impact the the ability of folk in my congregation to to move up the ladder at the casinos that we work at. Right. Mm -hmm. I think I'm talking about how do we redistribute wealth uh, so that it is not hoarded uh, at the top by, by the top by the top, you know, three percent. But they hear politics. Right. And, and I had to work through that, uh, that no, there is something political about what I do, uh, but it is a political spirituality that is that centers justice. Right. So so I'm not talking about politics as you know them. I may be talking about something that is political, but it is also spiritual at the same time. Healthcare is a spiritual and a political issue. Uh, how we use our prisons and what a judge and and how harsh a judge can sentence you is both political and spiritual. Uh, children having access to education that is not segregated, but is also accessible and efficient. That's both spiritual and political for me, because those are both issues of, of justice. What brings the political and spiritual together for me is how we think about 
the work of guaranteeing that everyone has access to the material resources that they need, but also they're guaranteed an opportunity for flourishing and sustainability. Amen. It reminds me of the saying, uh, preaching faith should never be partisan but it should always be political. Ah, I love that. <laughs> so, I love that. Yeah. Uh, well, I've got one more question before I hand it over to Missy. And again, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been a pure joy. Again, the book is Silencing White Noise. You're going to want to pick it up after you hit uh, uh, conclu- the conclusion of this podcast. But for my final question, I want to talk about the end of the book. And you focus on hope. I'm going to yeah. interject. You are? Yes, this is where you're stealing this question from me. So go ahead. Stealing the question. I'm just going to offer my commentary. I had mentioned the audio book was not so great um, for being able to highlight and and remember things. But I will say, and this is my beef here with you reading this book, Dr. Francois, is that you didn't warn us before the last chapter that we were going to church. (laughs) I was not appropriately dressed (laughs) for that. I love Um, it. I love it. Last chapter. Yeah. I I just wanted to put on my dress and and my Sunday shoes and and, uh, just sit and take it all in. It was fantastic. In that last chapter, you write these profound words. And the reason I really want to leave, Missy and I spent a lot of last week's episode talking about Christian nationalism and that when we combat Christian Christian nationalism, it does not mean that we don't love this country or we want to make this country into our own image. And you write these words. I judge America so harshly, not as an unpatriotic agitator or some unhinged anarchist. My love for democracy and freedom, humanity and God instructs me to belt out clarion cries for national transformation. I rebuke my country's practice of tyranny and hierarchy in light of its well-documented professions of justice, equality, and freedom for all. And you go on to say, and this is really where you got me. We need a new hope, a new version of hope. It registers more like blues hope, gritty hope. A blues hope honors the complexities of human personality, engagement, and existence. So Dr. Francois, can you leave us with some of this blues hope that you talk about? Yeah, I I mean, so so I lean into, into this, this gritty form of hope uh, that, that, that we find in the blues, uh, that James Cone in his work, Spiritual in the Blues, uh, attempt to show us uh, that it is only this type of gritty hope that has allowed uh, Black folk to hold the jagged edges of, of experience at face value and then transcend them, right? January 6th happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is quite possible uh, that we will continue to see the killing of unarmed black folk. Uh, you know, just just this week we heard another one from Ohio, and mm-hmm. and and you know we we've become so normalized, uh, we we we've become so comfortable in a sense uh, with experiencing this. Uh, what it means to have hope is to be able to name the reality of these, these, these atrocities, the realities of, of these vulnerabilities without allowing them to rob us 
of what is at our core. And that is to believe that tomorrow can be better than today. Mm. And I say that uh, as, 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 as someone who believes uh, that although we are running out of time, we can get this right if we want to get it right. Mm. I wrote this book as a testament of blues hope. I wrote it as, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a resource, but also as a product of my own daily inventions of hope. Hope has to be invented every single day. Again, to borrow from from, from James Baldwin, mm-hmm. uh, having these conversations uh, with the two of you is a part of my day's invention uh, of, of hope. Uh, you know, a Facebook encounter with with someone who I wouldn't have expected. Uh, who is is I know is a is a part of a white evangelical church who found value in reading this book. That that, that is a part of the invention of hope. Blues hope is us being able to to be honest about the the ruggedness, to be honest about the the grueling nature of the American atmosphere of the American of American life. To be honest, that January 6th happened and it can happen again, but to tell ourselves we will not allow it to squelch the fight in us, right? Every day we wake up and we decide to silence white noise a little more, we get a little closer to America's print version of itself. Not the version that we have been forced to live with uh, since the signing of those documents in 1776. No, but the kind of America that actually lived on those pages and the kind of America that lived on the pages of the Constitution uh, that, that, that are about full equality, that are about the potential for a multiracial democracy, mm-hmm. that are about the capacity to redistribute wealth in ways that allow for human sustainability and not human coextinction. Right. That 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 is how I understand this this work. And that is what I hope grows out of this book as as people as people read it and debate it uh, and and share it uh, and, and 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 study it and work through it. Well, I feel like we could just copy paste your entire um, interview today in this last question. Um, but even still, we'll we'll go on and see what what other little nugget you have for us. As you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is "There's more to tell." In light of our conversation today, in light of your work, tell us what is your more to tell. Uh, let me answer it this way: White supremacy is not about white people only. Uh, I think that's important to oversay. Because of the nature of white noise and the nature of white supremacy, it can live in non-white bodies. All of us have the capacity to be anti-black, to be anti-brown, to be anti the various Asian communities, the various Latinx communities. All of us have that capacity within us. Even me, somebody who wrote who wrote this type of book, I have to always be on guard for the ways the society shapes me to to be distrustful of 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 certain certain uh people who are also black right white supremacy is not about white people it's not about ancestry it's not about it's not about skin color those things are not what make white supremacy alive today or or what breathe oxygen into it all of us 
uh, have the potential uh, to perpetuate white supremacy in some way. I hope that comes through when we read the book, because that tells us that there's work that we have to all do internally as well. But companion to that, I must say that it is the job of white people to abolish white racism. White people have to do the work of working on each other. They have to do the work of trying to recreate an economy that actually works for all folks. They have to do the work of making sure that white supremacy is not baked into our laws, baked into our politics, uh, baked into the way that, that, that our judiciary is, is set up. And so we actually need in this moment more courageous, uh, more white people who are committed to resilient, persistent neighborliness, who are able to engage each other so that we can end interpersonal, interpersonal racism, but also so that we can end institutional racism. Absolutely. Well said and way to end this podcast. The book is Silencing White Noise, Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race. Reverend Dr. Willie Dwayne Francois III, it has been a pure joy, my friend, and you are welcome back to this podcast anytime you want to come back. The honor is mine, and I look forward to that invitation. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Good